Father, I want to say thank you to you for your grace and your goodness to us. You have poured out this new life into us through Jesus, who is our Savior, the Savior of the world. Once we were not a people, once we were exiles, once we wandered lonely and lost in a dry and arid place, but you came and found us in your Son, and you drew us home, and you've lifted us up laughing as a, as a father picks up his, his, his toddling son and laughs. You greet us, you pick us up, you exalt, you rejoice over us. You sing and, and coo over us as a young mother does over her baby. And Lord, you have blessed us and it is good. And everyone said, Amen. Now this morning, um, I'm going to be picking up the baton yet again. And uh, let's put these things down on the floor, shall we? And uh, the baton I'm speaking of is that we are, through this autumn, going through... Do you want to take this one out? Thanks, Andrew. <coughs> there we go. The baton I'm speaking of is, is a, a book called The Big Story... And uh, this has been available on our bookstore for the last few weeks. I hope that you've bought a copy. I've, I've heard that they've sold well. And we're subbing this. I think they're normally five, five pounds or something, and we're pushing them out at two pounds fifty, because in this autumn season, every year, we want to give you tools to help you grow deeper. You know, there's, there is this sense of not just going on, hurtling forward, as we, we do in Vineyard, but there is this sense of a need to go deeper. And, and this course, written by an Anglican curate in Hammersmith, uh, is, is called The Big Story, and it's an express tour of the Bible in 40 days. And you can do it personally, you can sort of read through it, uh, you can do it as home groups, there's study guides and all the rest of it. And we as a staff felt that we wanted to present this to you, encourage you to use it in some way, shape or form, uh, and really to sort of tease and, and pull things together. Often as we get to know Jesus and begin to read our Bibles, we get to know odd stories here and there, but sometimes we, we, we just don't have a good enough grasp of the overview. And so the big story is, that its strongest point is it gives us the overview, that sense of continuity, that sense of God's purposes working through history. And it's an extraordinary experience and it will elucidate and inform your daily Bible reading beyond this 40 days or whatever. So I, I do want to just plug that again and encourage you to get that off the bookstore, £2.50. And this week, I'm picking up the fourth story. It's actually, we're coming to the end of our overview of the Old Testament. And as I said last week, a couple of weeks ago, I should say, all we can do as a preaching team is give you the skeleton. In fact, we had a little bit of a, a conference, didn't we, Dan, a couple of weeks ago, because we weren't sure that we were doing a particularly good job of it. And part of the problem is that we know what's in the book, and we so want to share the stories. We want to share the flesh. We want to share you know, the detail, the color of the eyes, the hair, the clothes, the, the feel, the sense, and all the rest. That's what we get excited about. But we're trying to be very disciplined here and giving you the skeleton and urging, exhorting, you know, encouraging you to, to, to put the flesh on yourself. So we're trying to give you 
a structure so that you can see how it all sort of fits together and then you get to do the exciting stuff. And boy, that's been difficult for us to do, but I think we're beginning to get there. Anyway, so this morning is the last in this uh, uh, is, is the last in the Old Testament, and then there's going to be four on the New Testament. Rick will be kicking that off next week, and he gets to speak on the kingdom of God, and I don't know how he got that one, because I'd really like to do that one. You know, I get the exile, which is really the darkest hour. That's the kind of the pits, as far as the, the Bible is concerned. How did I draw that short straw? I really got to get better at this kind of thing, you know. But anyway, so we're, beginning, we're going to be talking this morning about the exile and return, and what is important about this is, is really to grasp just how this experience that I'm going to outline to you this morning dictated the way the Jews saw themselves in Jesus' day. It was such a horrendous experience for them that from their perception, came right out of left field, although the prophets had been warning them that this would happen for generations. When it actually happened, it was like a, you know, like a, like a teenager. You know, you know, I have four kids that have all grown up, and there were times when some of our kids you know, behaved a bit badly. They'd do what teenagers do, and you'd say, if you carry on doing that, this will happen. And they didn't listen, they didn't listen, they didn't listen. One day I said, right, that's it, you're grounded for the next month. And it's, oh no, well, honestly, really? Oh, you're kidding, when did you say that was going to happen? You know? And it was like, like they'd never heard it, they'd never heard me have a problem with this issue that they were, they'd sort of fallen foul of. And it's like, there was a complete kind of reaction. Like, what? You, hey, would you, hey, wait a minute, we didn't know anything about that. You know? And it's the people of God were that same way. They were so deaf to the cries of God. The appeals of God through the prophets, that when it happened, it came as an incredible shock, a devastating shock. And actually, they never quite recovered. In fact, it's part of the psyche, even to this day, that our God actually let us be carried off into exile. Ugh. So, although it is a difficult thing and, and not the, the, the happiest of moments in Israel's story, nonetheless, it's a very important one for us to grasp as followers of Jesus because when we get into the Gospels, when we begin to talk talking about the good news, when we start proclaiming welcome home, it's very profound. It's one of those little things that that some of you know this because I've, I've done it to you. As you've come into this church, as I've greeted you at the door or bumped into you at something or other, and I say, welcome home, I can't tell you how many times people have teared up. There is something incredibly profound in coming home. It's no accident. It's something deep in our code. I'm going to pray again, and I'm going to start the material. Father, again, I want to say thank you for this morning. Thank you for that sense of joy that we have come home. Now, Lord God, as we seek to, to, imp- to improve our understanding and, and, and to receive revelation as to, how, as to how we can communicate this better and understand more your purposes, give me grace to get over my fluey cold and think clearly and communicate well in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we start this thing with, a, with really what 
might have been the golden age, I suppose. And uh, last time I was talking about the promised land, and I, I, I said to you, you know, uh, did a little recap in the first week. Uh, dear Richard presented the whole creation and fall story. Isn't time to go through this. They're all on the podcast if you want to catch up. Then after that, Dennis did uh, a chosen people, how God chose a nation to, to really be a blessing to the other nations. And with that privilege came responsibility. And it has to say it's a responsibility that the people of God didn't quite live up to. They ended up in, um, in slavery, a slave nation. And yet God remembered his promises and he brought them out of slavery and he brought them ultimately to the promised land, a land as it was described flowing with milk and honey, Palestine as we know it today. And uh, they, they thought that that was, that was the end of the story. That was the happy ending. They thought they had made it. They had arrived. And when God gave them kings that caused them to prosper and gain huge prestige and respect from the nations around, then they thought this truly is the golden age. But unfortunately, as with many empires, there's the golden age and then it begins... Then decadence and decay and what have you begins to creep in and, and the people of Israel began to worship other gods and it began to go sour and then the voices came not little voices in your head but the prophets started saying turn, turn to the Lord your God turn to the Lord your God you have forgotten the God who delivered you who brought you out of Egypt turn to the Lord your God but they said, no, 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 we're having such fun here. And that's kind of where we pick up the story. And I wanted to read you one, uh, one little passage from one of the minor prophets. And the reason I want to read this is because it, it for me, encapsulates, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> it encapsulates God's heart for his people. God's heart for them, their resistance to his love and to his appeals, a promise, of you, if you like, of, of judgment to come, but then even beyond that, God says, but I will again bring you home. So I'm going to read this little passage out of the minor prophet Hosea quite dramatic it's in the first person it's God himself speaking some of you will be familiar with this it's a wonderful passage I believe and it's uh, Hosea 11 beginning at verse 1 when Israel was a child I loved him and out of Egypt I called my son but the more I called Israel the further they went from me they sacrificed to the Baals they burned incense to images yet it was I who taught Ephraim how to walk. I who, who took them in my arms and cradled them. They did not seem to realize that it was I who healed them. I led them with cords of human kindness, with ties of love. I lifted the yoke from their neck and bent down to feed them. But they turned their back on me. They ran from me. So, they will return to Egypt. And Assyria will rule over them because they refuse to repent. 
Swords will flash in their cities, will destroy the bars of their gates and put an end to their plans. My people are determined to turn from me. Even if they call to the Most High, he will by no means exalt them. How can I give you up? How can I give you up, Israel? How can I treat you like I did Adma? How can I make you like Zeboim? My heart is changed within me. All my compassion is aroused. I will not carry out my fierce anger, nor will I turn and devastate them. For I am God and not man. I am the Holy One among you. I will not come in wrath. They will turn again. They will. They will turn again and they will follow the Lord. And when he roars, his children will come trembling from the west. They will come trembling like birds from Egypt, like doves from Assyria. And I will settle them in their homes declares the Lord. It's a wonderful passage, isn't it? I find it very moving, to be honest. I mean, anyone who's had a child and chased them around the supermarket because they don't want to, you know, go with you will know that whole business of loving someone and, and yet they run away. Fliss and I and uh, one of our kids was up, in, um, up at Dunstable Downs about three weeks ago flying a kite. It was wonderful. And uh, my granddaughter, who's two, and a little gem, apple of our eye, and all of you who are grandparents and parents will know what I'm talking about, went back to the car park, and uh, all of a sudden, River decided she wanted to take off across the car park. And this car's just sort of, you know, careering around. And I saw her go first, and I'm not going to shout because it'll pop the, um, pop the speakers or something, but, but I, I said, River, stop! And she didn't. She giggled and carried on. And with that, Fliss looked up and saw, as Fliss screamed, Reva, stop! And at that, Noel, her, her mother, said, Reva, stop! And went hurtling after her. And she was still giggling and careering off down through the car park, you know, like we're impotent adults, you know, something, stop, 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 you know. And she's careering off. I mean, it was funny to tell the story, and I smiled at it now, it makes me giggle slightly. But at the time, there were cars careering around, and she thought it was fun and she thought we weren't serious and we didn't really mean stop and God meant stop. And they said, I'll oh, get away, you big softy. And oh my gosh. And this passage in Hosea, sort of, we, we catch a glimpse of the heart of God. You know, often people portray God in the Old Testament as a God of vengeance. Well, there's plenty of vengeful stuff, but actually when it comes to his people, his heart is compassionate. He, he's exasperated at times. And that comes through here. So God sent many prophets, Hosea, one of the least of them, if I dare say that, to appeal to his people to turn to him. And Hosea actually comes at the end of a long list of prophets who have appealed to them. And, and really it's too late by that point. And we can see in that passage as I read through there, Hosea 11, if you want to check it out quietly this afternoon, 
we see that actually we've gone past the point of no return, that the case is laid against Israel, judgment is coming, and yet God will still rescue them one day. So from there, from the golden age, voices in the wilderness, prophets sent to appeal to the people of Israel, but then comes inevitably, with hindsight, the darkest hour. The darkest hour. And uh, with that, an extraordinary series of events take place. Just to remind you, by this time, the 12 tribes, because of infighting and political decadence and the rest, has separated. There's the 10 northern tribes and there's the two southern tribes. And uh, beginning of the 8th century, 722 BC, the the um, Assyrians invade the northern kingdoms. They ransack Samaria, which was the capital. And the people are, there's rape, ransack, pillage, goodness knows what. And they're carried off into exile. Those that survived. They used to, t- they, they often, they would leave the poorest of the poor. But they would take all the nobles, all the ruling classes and either kill them or take them off into exile. You completely dismantle the kind of social structure of the area. It was, it, it was just wipeout. Nations disappeared. And in fact, nothing was, there are stories in the scriptures, but beyond that, nothing was heard again of the northern kingdoms, northern tribes. They are just another tribe, another bunch of people, another people group that actually disappeared off the face of the earth because of this policy of exile and dismantling. But the two southern tribes, the tribes of Judah, they actually hung on in there for another hundred years or so, and there was a bit of a revival. The, what happened to the northern tribes made them sit up, and particularly through King Hezekiah and others, they said, flipping it, did you see what that, did you hear what happened? Oh my gosh! And there was a kind of a There was a response and there was a reaction and and finally they sat up and watched. But of course, you know, the the older generation that lived through it and saw that and the horror of it, you know, they they walked with God. But then the younger generation said, "Nah, nah, 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 nah." And a hundred years later, the southern tribes are invaded by the Babylonians and Jerusalem, the holy city. This is David's city. It's hard for us as as Westerners to really understand the import of this. This was the place on God's earth where God had said, "This this is going to be the center of my reign and rule. And we're going to build a temple here. And I, it's not just going to be pretty or a wonder of the world and covered in gold and all the rest of it. My presence is going to be there. My presence. And if you want to read in... About, about Solomon's dedication of the temple and about the presence of God coming into that place. It is the most exciting thing about that place. There are long lists of the gilding and the gold and all the gems and all the rest of it, and you, you cannot fail but to go, wow. You know, if you've been to the British Museum and seen various bits of these ancient temples, there's a, a huge wow factor. But when you read about the dedication of the temple, the, ver- the thing that actually blows you away is not the wow about the gold and the precious stones. It's that all of a sudden, the presence of God descended on that place. And everyone hit the deck simultaneously, face down, and didn't dare move. 
This was God on earth with us. And I think as time went on, and it's so much like us, isn't it? A complacency crept in. So when the Babylonians swept into that place, and my goodness, they were a nasty piece of work. Ransack, rape, pillage, devastation. They dismantled stone by stone the temple. I mean, how could they do that? Isn't it enough to destroy the people and carry them off into exile? But to actually tear apart God's own temple. It it, it raised a whole host of questions. For, for, for centuries after, Jewish theologians wrestled with the question, where is God in all of this? Have God's promises failed? Is their God bigger than our God? What is evil anyway? Is there a personification of evil? Are we subject to that? And then, of course, those that had the will delved back into their scriptures, those that had remained, and of course many were lost, and they began to reevaluate the work of those voices in the wilderness. And scholars across the nation started saying, Oh, uh, hang on, I'm sorry. Actually, we we were told. Oh my gosh, were we told. We didn't listen. So this, this whole kind of debate of where is God in all of this really became something very, very deep. And I want to read you Psalm 137, which, which comes from this, this, past, this time of, of exile. And... Uh, it's tough reading, short but tough reading, and you'll, you'll see why in just a moment. Psalm 137. These are the, the writings of the exiles, in exile, those who actually escaped the rape, the pillage, and the ransacking and actually were carried off into exile. Psalm 137. By the rivers of Babylon we sat and wept when we remembered Zion, Jerusalem. There on the poplars we hung our harps. For there our captors asked of us, our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, sing us one of the songs of Zion. You get the picture, they've been carried off into exile. They have this great tradition of singing and and musicianship. And they've been carried off because their invaders thought, well, yeah, it might, might be nice to have a bit of music. And... Then they're also passing and they bring out some of the Hebrew slaves and say, okay, get your, get, get your guitar, get your lyre, sing us one of those jolly old songs from Zion. And you see what's happening here? And the psalmist is saying, what are they like? Don't they understand? How can they stand there and demand from us songs of joy and celebration? Man. And it goes on for, how can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, may my right hand forget its skill. May I no longer be able to play the lyre, the the tambourine, the, the guitar. Just let my arm drop off if I forget Jerusalem and its glories and our God. 
and his presence. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you. If I do not consider joy my Jerusalem, my highest joy. I am not going to forget Jerusalem. And then there's an appeal to God. Remember, O oh Lord, what those, what those Edomites did to us on the day that Jerusalem fell. Tear it down, they cried. Tear it down to its foundations. And then there's a kind of a prophecy against their captors. O daughter of Babylon, doomed, you're doomed to destruction. Happy is he who repays you for what you've done to us. He who seizes your children and dashes them against the rocks. Can you feel the pain there? The consternation. The disconnection for all that they love and all that they thought was dear. A a shocking, a shocking image. Dashing their enemies' children against against a rock. But that's the intensity here. The pain. This was a dark, dark, dark time. But then... It's a bit of an old cliche, I know. The darkest hour is just before dawn. And guess who appears over the horizons? The Persians. And they are madder and badder than the Babylonians. Initially, I'm sure the children of Israel thought, whatever, they're going to be as bad as the next bunch. And the Persians ransacked Babylon. The Persians did what they had longed for in that psalm. They, they actually routed the Babylonians. And King Cyrus comes to the throne. And he has a different policy about vassal nations. He actually doesn't, ex, doesn't deport everyone. Rather, he demands that vassal nations pay a tithe, some sort of a favor to them. And also he is a God-fearing man in the most general of senses. Many of the previous tyrants served one God and they conquered in the name of their God, be it Dagon of the Philistines or Molech or whoever it was. But Cyrus was different. He was a bit of a universalist. He encouraged religion, really not wanting to get on the wrong side of any god. So suddenly, against all expectations, after a mere 60 years, a lifetime for many, but after a mere 60 years, the priest Ezra is given permission to go back to Jerusalem and to start rebuilding the temple. Extraordinary. When they get back there, it's a very big task. Because not only is the, the place pulled apart, it's not just a case of rebuilding like one would do with a kid's Lego set. The limestone has been burned, and when you burn limestone, it becomes powder. The, the very stones themselves have become dust. There's no building materials. It's, a, it's an incredible task. 
And the story of Ezra and, and Haggai and others, it's in the book, the story of the rebuilding of the temple is kind of, it's a kind of a one chapter of joy and celebration, one chapter of weeping, oh my gosh, this is too much for us, we'll never get it done. And then after Ezra, we get Nehemiah, who is sent back to rebuild the city walls. Something changes. Where it was the darkest hour, where it was all hopeless, helpless, suddenly it dis- they discover that God has not forgotten them. just want to read Psalm, read Psalm 126 here. When the Lord brought back the captives to Zion, we were like men who dreamed. Our mouths were filled with laughter, our tongues with songs of joy. Then it was said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us and we are filled with joy. Restore our fortunes, O Lord. Like streams in the Negev, those who sow in tears will reap with songs of joy. He who goes out weeping, carrying seeds, will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with him. Their jaws just dropped open. What? You're kidding me. You mean we get to go back home and rebuild your... What? God, you've done great things for us. And so it goes on. I hope the excitement comes through. Now, you know, I'd love to say that the Old Testament finishes in a blaze of glory and it's... You know, and they all lived happily ever after. It's not quite there yet, I'm afraid. But, but it does finish with the people of Israel coming back and rebuilding. But there is still this scar on their very psyche that, that how could God have let this happen? How could, how, how, we've got to learn from our mistakes We've got to pay attention. We, we've got to walk in faithfulness and holiness. We've, we've got to seek his face and we've got, to, we've got to keep God at the center of all our being. You know, there obviously is, a, a, there is a, an application here for us, isn't there, as 21st century Christians. I mean, hands up here if you've ever been through a dark period of your life. Yeah. Duh. We all have. There are always challenges. Uh, and uh, I, I think I can say to you, I'm better at that now. But in the early days, I wasn't very good at it at all. Uh, I, I would start all sorts of little rants at God. Why are you letting this happen? You're supposed to be God, aren't you? Come on, you know, wake up. Who do you think you are? few people nodding there, yes. Um, I won't ask for a show of hands. It's a sign of immaturity and God's used to it. I've, I've spoken about this quite a lot just recently. But when we go through tough and dark times, just as the, 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 the Israelites did, they said, well, come on, God, you're supposed to be bigger than their God. You know, do your stuff and rescue us. And they had forgotten that actually they had lived care less of God for a for generations and God had appealed to them and spoken to them about how this, this behavior was going to end in tears. So I would encourage you if you're in that place today where you're saying, where is God in all of this? 
I thought God made me promises, and I don't seem to be seeing them yet. I've done my part. Where's God? You know, we come up with all sorts of things. And I would encourage you to walk carefully. Because truth is, as the scripture says in the New Testament, we have all fallen short of the glory of God. We may be feeling quite pleased with us and managed, you know, to live up to our standards, but are they God's standards? Does God owe us anything? No. God doesn't owe me a thing, nor does he you. We need to walk humbly and respectfully with our God. And the blessing will come through. It will come through. That's the story of scripture. That's the story of my life to date. The blessing has come through. There is an application in this. This is more than just a rather dark and academic exercise. We are all facing challenges. I was talking to somebody yesterday who really doesn't know whether their business is going to make it through next year. I have spoken to a number of businessmen who said, if I can just make it through 2010, I think there's a chance. Forget about green shoots and all the rest of it. You guys, many of you, are, you are at the rock face. Your businesses. Your, your, your life, your experience is what's real for you and I know that hold fast to God hold fast to God he is a promise keeper he is a promise keeper and to finish on on an uplift which will set it up nicely for Rick next week we do begin to find in the Old Testament other prophetic voices which essentially say welcome home and not just welcome home but welcome home it's not just a bringing back it's not even just a restoration but it's, it begins to speak of the establishment of the kingdom of God beyond even Jerusalem and uh, Isaiah 61 is one of many passages, and, uh, and this will prove familiar to a number of you, but Isaiah 61, where uh, the prophet says this, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Not just restoration, not just, okay, well, all bets are off. We'll draw a line in the sand. We'll call it a day. We'll go back to go. Collect 200 pounds. Another chance. This is more than that. It's more than restoration. It is the year of the Lord's favor. And when, a, when as individuals, when as a community, when your businesses, your workplaces are operating under the favor of God, it is a wonderful thing. A wonderful thing. And that's what the prophets begin to say. There is a time coming when God himself will be with us. A time coming where the Spirit of God will be given not just to that special and elite people of God, but will be poured out on all flesh. What we had happening at Alpha yesterday, where 
So many of you experienced the Holy Spirit for the first time and were filled with, with his love and his presence and his joy. That is a direct working out of these promises in the 21st century. God pouring out his spirit on all flesh, Jew and Gentile. And it all came in. The, the cork was pulled when Jesus came and brought in his kingdom. And that's next week's talk. Let's have the worship team up. Would you mind standing? I'm just going to pray. At the end of the service, as always, just a few moments, there will be an opportunity for prayer to my right, your left, and I'm going to share with you one or two words of knowledge. Why don't I do that now? Thank you, Linda. Our prayer teams before the service felt that the Lord was wanting to minister to a man suffering from tinnitus, um, also pain in the right ear, somebody suffering with a blood disorder, somebody with an infection in the tongue, a right hip, maybe you've had a replacement or need a replacement and it's not quite, not quite there yet, you're experiencing some pain and discomfort, weakness in the left wrist, um, there's alopeca, alopecia, I don't, how do you pronounce that? You, you got it, you, whatever, what, what she said there, alopecia, is that right? Thank you. Alopecia, alopecia in the scalp, lady with uh, an eyesight problem due to uh, uh, some sort of head trauma, someone with, with some kind of rash, and a woman with depression, suffering headaches. These are things that our prayer team felt that we would love to pray for. We felt that God was saying, you know, broadcast that, and I'd love to meet with those people. But also, drawing on this talk, if you're going through one of those dark nights, if, you're, if, if the voices are... if the voices are not clear... If you need to come before the Lord and say, sorry Lord, I lost it a bit there. Please forgive me. If you need to do that kind of business, well then again, a great opportunity at the end of the service when I said the blessing to get some prayer. Now pray, let's pray. Father, we want to say thank you to you. We stand here in the 21st century, discovering this as for the first time. But actually we stand in the midst of a great flood of compassion from the very dawn of time, we've been caught up into something so much bigger than ourselves. And we pray that you would instruct us and that you would teach us and that we wouldn't run from you giggling like my daughter in the car park, but we would turn to you and have you sweep us off your feet, sweep us off our feet, and know your laughter and your smile and your favor. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.